A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hey, Kim. I heard this thing that some anthropologists said that the Inuit have 50 words for snow. Well, I don't know if that's exactly true. Uh, yeah, me neither. But, you know, it got me thinking. Canadians must have at least 50 words to steal our land. Like specific land claim? Uh-huh. Comprehensive land claim? Section 38.2 of the Indian Act. Rule of law. Doctrine of discovery. Enfranchisement. The problem is all inside your head, Johnny said to me. The answer is easy if you fake it convincingly. I'm here to help you with your dilemma to get land free. There must be 50 ways to trick a treaty. Edgar said first, always form a habit to intrude. Furthermore, be sure to always deceive and misconstrue. It doesn't matter cause they're savages and crude There must be 50 ways to trick a treaty 50 ways to trick a treaty Use the doctrine of discovery Paper rules by the Pope, you see Make them feel inferiority It's always worked for me Remove all of their ability To think clearly and logically Strip them of all their dignity are you beginning to see? We'll have to pass an Indian Act 
And never ever back off from attack You know it's all in the plan, understand To get the land for free Manipulate so we're the key Thanks to David A. Moses for that parody song on Paul Simon's 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. It certainly sets the tone. It did. Let's do this. Let's go down. I'm Kim Wheeler, and I'm the producer on this podcast called Canada Land Back, a co-production from Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. I'm Karen Pugliese, Editor-in-Chief of Canada's National Observer. I've been a journalist for 20 years. During that time, I've covered or worked closely with other Indigenous journalists reporting on land actions at places like Cocomville, Lac-Simon, Burnt Church, Sun Peaks, Caledonia, Elsie Poktuk, Standing Rock, Wet'suwet'en, and others. You've probably seen videos from those disputes. Police move in with riot gear and pepper spray, tackling people who are trying to protect their land. These scenes have become so familiar, so disturbingly normal. There's been endless commissions, inquiries, reports, court cases, trying to find a way out of these confrontations. Most of these have failed us and now lie in archives gathering dust. The 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission was another chance. Reconciliation is the life work of our elders, trying to find some middle ground. But maybe we're past reconciliation. I've watched a generation of kids who grew up at these land actions. 20 years ago, I reported on them, toddlers wearing diapers, running around at the barricades. I watched their eyes and faces as the police arrested their parents. Today, these are the youth on the front lines, and they're carrying signs saying reconciliation is dead. What if that's true? If reconciliation is dead, then what? This season on Canada Land Back, we're asking how did we get to a point where calling in armed police on First Nations people is so normalized. What happens if we don't find a way to resolve these disputes? I want to take you to Stony Point. Stony Point is a community that's still healing. We didn't just go there to open old wounds. To me, the story of Stony Point is a story of a chance we missed. History could have been different. It's a story of lessons we could have learned, but didn't. I first heard of Stony Point in 1993, when elders in the community ran out of patience and decided to take their land back. It was a peaceful movement. Until one night, two years later, suddenly it wasn't. The people of Stony Point want you to remember their story. The community came together and wrote a book, Our Long Struggle for Home, and it's being released at the same time as this podcast. I hope you'll buy it and read their whole story in their own voices. We're telling this story in a two-part episode. Part two has a trigger warning.
Bonnie Brissett lives at the Kettle and Stony Point First Nation on the southeast shore of Lake Huron. It's a small community. A thousand people live here, and like most First Nations, half of the population is kids. My producer Kim Wheeler and I are driving along a quiet lakeside road, past beaches and docks with boats. The homes lining the road are small and comfortable. It's a quiet place with a cottage country feel. Um, Bonnie said Grand Bend was 15 minutes away, and so like now we're driving away from the community, so I'm going to turn around. <laughs> you know the gravel road that we came When we on? get to Bonnie's house, that she's at the kitchen table peeling wild grapes. She rocks back and forth in her wheelchair, making the floor creak as she works. They're so tiny, they look like blueberries. Yeah, and I, I pick them, I've got them all washed that I clean, and then I'll boil them and then mash them all down, and then I pick, put them in cheesecloth, and all that pure ju- juice will come out of them, and I make jelly out of it. So I'll do about 50 jars of that. The preserve she's making, just one of the many traditions passed down to Bonnie from her parents that she will teach her granddaughter, who is quietly listening from the kitchen. As an elder, Bonnie remembers when the Anishinaabeg lived on their own land at a place called Stony Point, or in their language, Ajadanang. It's less than 10 kilometers from where she lives today, and yet, for generations, it's been out of reach. The stories that bridge that time to now are told in pictures that cover Bonnie's walls, fill photo albums, and cover the glass of her china cabinet. And you'll see that picture of the truck pulling house. That's mom and dad's house, our house. This picture Bonnie is showing me was taken in 1942. And yes, her house is literally being loaded onto a truck. Bonnie was just five years old. On our house and then... Dad was sitting on some big blocks from wood cutting. We asked him, what, what's, what's our doing? Our, where's our going with our house? And he said, well, we got to go live that kettle point down by Grandma Flora's until the war is over, and then we'll come back. The government was taking their land. Everyone had to move. Well, it was gardening time because I know Dad had planted all the garden and Grandma Laura, who lived next door, had planted her garden. Everybody, because your life depended on them gardens, they planted them gardens. And uh, so it'd be about, uh, it must have been about end of April, first part of May, because that's when the frost is out the ground. And everybody put their gardens in down there. And the day uh, we left Sony Point, I didn't even know we were leaving because mom got us up and we're having a... uh, We didn't have no bathroom. We had a big old laundry tub where she scrubbed her clothes in. And we're having a bath. When we got up that morning, when we had our bath and mom put our best dresses on us and put anklets on us. We didn't wear anklets unless you're going someplace. They said both of those ladies were trying to address what was happening with dignity. Bonnie lost more than a home that day. She lost a community and a way of life. In the book, Our Long Struggle for Home, elders describe life before the land was stolen. They hunted deer, and families shared the meat. 
Some families had farms where they raised chickens and geese and cows. Women knew which plants to use for medicine. Here's the thing. When Indigenous land is stolen, it's never just stolen once. It's stolen over and over. And that's what happened at Stony Point. Okay, kids. Kim and I are now going to attempt to explain just over 250 years of colonialism in less than a minute. Skoden? Studis. The Doctrine of Discovery was a colonial law. It sanctioned the seizure of any lands not owned by Christians in the name of the king. This law is still on the books of many countries around the world today. In practice, taking the land was not always that simple. When settlers started encroaching on Anishinaabeg land, Pontiac and Adawa chief threatened to clear the region of all Europeans. And he almost did. That threat caused King George III to drop the doctrine of discovery. He issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which respected Indigenous title. Afterward, land was supposed to be officially surrendered. Large swatches of land in Canada were never surrendered. The Maritimes, Quebec, BC, and most of Ontario. That's called unceded territory. The Anishinaabeg say they never surrendered their land either. The text of the 1827 Huron Tract Treaty, written in English, says the Anishinaabeg surrendered 1.5 million acres of land. An area larger than Prince Edward Island to the British. In exchange, for money and gifts. According to Nishnabeg, the agreement was to share the land, not give it up. Share, you know, like we learn in kindergarten. The treaty also created four reserves, including Bonnie's Reserve, Stony Point, for the exclusive use of the Nishnabeg. Despite the promise of exclusive use, the federal government seized a stretch of land to build a highway. Then, in the 1920s and 1930s, Real estate agents and land speculators bought other pieces of Stony Point. Including a burial ground that was resold to Ontario and became Ipperwash Provincial Park. Ipperwash Provincial Park. Remember that. It's important. In 1942, the federal government asked the people of Stony Point to give up the rest of their reserve. The feds wanted to build an army base to train soldiers for the Second World War. The citizens of Stony Point voted overwhelmingly no. The government used a law that gave it sweeping powers during wartime, the War Measures Act, to seize the reserve against the will of the citizens of Stony Point. Imagine if the government just came in and seized your neighborhood or city and moved your house. The government promised to return the land after the war, by law, they had to. Like that was going to happen. That is the short story of how two million acres of land was taken. Okay, that might have been a little more than one minute. And that is why Bonnie Brissett's house was put on a truck and moved to another reserve, Kettle Point. The Indian agent hired movers who jacked up the houses without even wrapping their dishes up. Family heirlooms fell and shattered. Windows cracked. Doorknobs broke. Bonnie's family was lucky. They could afford to buy land at Kettle Point. Not everyone could. Those who couldn't? The army bulldozed their homes. And the gardens they counted on for food? Those were flattened. The army plowed them all. Wonder where Grandma Laura's horses went. She had two big black horses. And she had cows and pigs and chickens and geese. And it wasn't until we were at a meeting about... 
uh, probably about 15 years ago that I thought about, where's all these animals? Everybody had horses and cows and pigs down there. Not everybody, but mostly everybody did. But where did they all go? And then when somebody done research, they found out that building the barracks and everything at Stony Point killed all them animals and they ate, fed them to the workers that were building the barracks and all the stuff for the army. They never ever compensated our First Nation for that. Bonnie's family, once well off with a farm and a garden, had to borrow food to survive the winter. Bonnie remembers her neighbours, Clifford and Ken George, were overseas fighting when the government seized Stony Point. Clifford fought in London, was wounded by shrapnel at Caen, and was captured in Italy and placed in a prisoner of war camp. Clifford came back from the war and his brother Ken, they didn't know that their home was now an army base. They went there to go and look for their home and they wouldn't let them on the base. They slept in a ditch that night alongside of Stony Point because they didn't have no place to go. Their mother died while they were overseas. She was one of the last Nishnabek to be buried at Stony Point. And when they they even went to the cliff, went to the cemetery, and seen where the soldiers shot up all the gravestones that was there marking the graves, they shot them all up. So those were things that the government has allowed to happen to our people And that's why the battle to have that land return becomes so important to me and other people, all the people around here. We wanted our land back. The War Measures Act expired in 1945. Legally, the government had to return the land. An internal memo of the Department of National Defense acknowledged that keeping the land in peacetime would be, quote, unjust to the Indians. But they kept it anyway. The base continued training soldiers for the Korean War in the 1950s and for NATO in the 1960s. Bonnie's family was told they'd be charged with trespassing if they returned to Stony Point. Bonnie's father snuck back anyway. I used to go back to Stony Point with my dad and Sheldon because they would go back there looking for trees because they... I would get some money selling seedlings, like baby uh, white pine, red pine, uh, uh, white birch. They would go back to the point. So beautiful back there. You got Bio Lake, Loon Lake, and uh, um, the other lake. I'll remember it. But that's where they would go on us thinking, well, pretty soon they're getting this old black teapot. They'd make a tripod, get a fire go and make a tripod. They'd go their old teapot and they'd throw tea in there. They had their old cups. And I used to think, what are they doing? What? Why did they get out of coming back here? It was a connection to a feeling of home that was passed down to Bonnie and to the generation after her. To hear that story... Bonnie sends me and Kim to visit Carolyn George. 
Canada Land Back is a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Off the coast of BC, wild salmon started dying by the millions. Whale biologist Alexandra Martin became the unlikely detective who discovered why and was pulled into a battle against government, industry, and multinational corporations. They did nothing about it. They were just going to let this industry kill the wild salmon. My mind was just in overdrive to stop this because I could see a whole generation of of wild salmon was, was going down. All 10 episodes of The Salmon People are now up on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Carolyn goes by the nickname Cully. To get to Cully's place, Kim and I have to leave Kettle Point and make the 10-kilometer drive to Army Camp Road, County Road 3. There's a security gate. What should I do? They want to know who we're visiting. Hi, it's Kim and Karen. We're here to see... No, Kim Wheeler. Oh, Wheeler? We're here to see... Cully. Cully. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I need to sign you. You can go. Okay, thanks. Should I park right here? Yeah. Should I park here? Yep. There. Cully lives on the Ipperwash Army Base. Yes, the same Army Base that's built where Stony Point used to be. How she got here is a story I'll share with you in a bit. Her house is just across from the gate. She's on the front lawn watching for our car and waves with a big grin when she sees us. So, so what was this building before? This was an Army building, right? A barracks. 
Kali is living in an old army barracks. See, um, check out the walls. This would have been the hallway, and there would have been a doorway. To, there would be a room here, there, there, and there. And it was majors living in here, but that was only like eight weeks out of the, out of the year. We joined Kali outside at a picnic table. She's surrounded by family. Her daughter and granddaughter are there. And so is her brother, Pierre-Georges. Cully and Pierre do most of the talking. They are the middle generation, the ones born homeless, the ones who lost so much in the struggle to reclaim their land. On this bright, sunny September day, Cully lays out a pamphlet on the picnic table. On the cover is a picture of her younger brother, Anthony George, who was better known by his nickname, Dudley. This is a little pamphlet about Dudley. This makes me uncomfortable, and I don't know what to to say. I know Dudley's story, but I worry about tearing open old wounds. So I sidestep Dudley for now. Instead, I ask Cully and Pierre to tell me about their dad and growing up at Stony Point. And um, the way I see it, they lived a rather rich life. They got to have butter all the time. (laughs) Fresh baked bread. (laughs) That's a big deal, yeah. And all the fruits and vegetables from... A garden, an orchard. And wild animals. Dear me. I want to know why they have such a strong attachment to this land, even though they didn't grow up here. This was his home. And when they became of age here, they were given a certain amount of land, and they had to live on it and work on it for two years before it could be signed over to them. And they... Like moved him out before he could be old enough to do that. So he would have had land that he could have left to us. In that way, it's their loss too. The life they never got a chance to have. Cully and Pierre's dad was a war veteran, like Clifford, who we heard about earlier. He was a young man when he came back to find the land gone. Dad was away. Your man was in Petawawa. Yeah. Yeah. That's up northern way. But mom was out by then. In fact, as elders tell it in their book, the first anyone knew the government was seizing the land was on a Sunday. The Indian agent nailed a notice outside the Methodist church in March 1942. They heard the hammer as the preacher was giving mass. After the war, Cully's dad met their mom, who was also a war veteran. Our mom was the very first woman to join the Women's Army Corps. I got the clipping at home. She was also in Anishinaabe, but from Sarnia First Nation. We lived in Sarnia, but he'd always take us out for a Sunday drive and bring us down, and we, well, it says no trespassing down there, danger, and all these little signs. (laughs) Mom and Dad hopped the fence and helped the kids all over, and we would trudge through the bush. Lots, didn't we, Pierre? Their father became a trucker. He was on the road a lot. The George family couldn't move back to Stony Point at that time. It was still an active army base. They did move back to Kettle Point, though, which was as close as they could get. Wanting to go back to Stony Point, where does that come from? Dad. Where did that go? I always wanted to come home and talking about... Uh, he would tell me all different ways and different things. They tried to be able to come back home and... Back then, you couldn't get a lawyer. The lawyer would get fired. 
Why couldn't you get a lawyer? To fight for Native rights. Yeah. Yeah, they would fire them. Cully's right. Up until 1951, it was illegal under the federal law that governs Indians, the Indian Act, for lawyers to represent Indians who were pursuing land claims. Even after it was legal, it was frowned upon. If you could find a lawyer to take your case, finding the money to fight a claim was next to impossible. Land claims run into the millions of dollars. Elders in the community remember hiring lawyers to fire off letters to Ottawa in the 1970s. But each letter cost money, and there was never enough to do more. Pushing for their land back was made harder because the government no longer recognized them as a separate people, but lumped them in with Kettle Point. Still, the elders had meetings and wrote letters to every federal politician. In 1972, Jean Chrétien, then the Minister of Indian and Northern Affairs, wrote a letter to the Department of National Defense supporting the return of Stony Point. It said, They have waited patiently for action. There are signs, however, that they will soon run out of patience. There is bound to be adverse publicity about our seeming apathy and the reluctance to make a just settlement. They may well resort to the same tactics as those employed by the St. Regis Indians at Loon and Stanley Islands in 1970 to occupy the lands they consider to be theirs. The people of Stony Point held public marches and protests to turn up the heat on government. At this point, Cully was working on the base as a cook. When the lieutenant governor came to inspect the cadets, Cully and the other women from Stony Point arranged a special welcome. So that one day, we all dressed up, like we're in native clothes anyways, and Cousin Mars had a great big old banner made up, and we were all back that far corner there. And when the last, I don't know, unit went by, we just were coming out holding our sign. <laughs> what does the sign say? <laughs> Welcome to Stony Point. <laughs> it was just fun doing those things, you know? I mean, they've been doing that uh, terrible things all that time to us, wouldn't give us our land back. What the heck would it matter if we told them anything at all? In 1980, there was a breakthrough. The government paid Stony Pointer's compensation. A million dollars was put into a trust, but held by the band at Kettle Point. More importantly, the government promised to return the land when it was no longer needed as an army base. Only, that promise had no date. The thing is, Canada wasn't training its military at the base in the 1980s. There was a firing range, used sometimes on weekends. There was a four-kilometer stretch of beach along Lake Huron, open to the public, and a stretch of land called the Marriage Patch. The Marriage Patch was a camping ground for the military, where they could vacation for a dollar a day. In 1988, Bonnie Brissett, the elder we met earlier, had been elected chief of Kettle and Stony Point First Nation. Stony Point now had one of their own on council, but Bonnie was getting nowhere with the government on the promise to return the land. So... She called in the big guns. I think it's a hell of a deal. If I buy your house and I say to you, Bob, that when I die or I have to go to the hospital or I can no longer use it as a residence, I'll give it back to you free and clear regardless of what it's worth then. Mr. Hill, if you buy 
my house from me, it's because I choose to sell it to you. Under these circumstances, that's not the case. This land's being taken away. Bob McEwen of CBC's Fifth Estate. I, I rewatched the uh, Fifth Estate piece. Oh, yeah, that was a good one. That guy's all burnt, laying back, saying, why would I? This is the home away from home. I give it up. That's Kevin Simon. He's the third generation removed from Stony Point. When the Fifth Estate aired its piece in 1989, 33 years ago, Kevin was 15 years old. But boy, does he remember that story. He's talking about this clip. You're not going to give away your home, and this, to us, especially like myself, it's uh, home away from home on the weekends and uh, relaxation, and hey, I'm not going to give it back to anybody, really. After the fifth round at story, the government closed the marriage patch. Yeah, they shut it down right after. It was so, so obvious that two, two tiered nature of it. Uh, they were allowed to live there, their home away from home, on taxpayers' dollar, on our land. Well, we're all homeless. I remember it too. For that clip was. It, it, it stuck was with me. Yep. <laughs> they closed the marriage patch, but not the base. Now the base was pretty much only a training camp for cadets. Is summer camp. Up to 8,000 cadets spend the summer months taking courses that last from two to six weeks. Kevin takes us to a spot and shows us a pole that used to hold a zip line across a river that runs through the site. See that thing we up top there? Mm-hmm. That was, uh, they had a, a cable strung across, like a zip line. Oh, yeah. Was that like, what, for tourists or something? For the, um, cadets. For the cadets. Yeah. This was just like a big summer playground for them guys. They come here for the summer and have a heyday playing. They'd march them around that corner back there, the clearing. There's another one up here where you go around the other side of these inland lakes. They had um, big clearings where they would put out outdoor kitchens for them, where they would feed them. They would march from up front. It's like a half hour to hour walk, get some wares, and then uh, they'd feed them good and have some drinks and then go play their games. Either splashing around in the water or running through the forest. <laughs> Myself, I think I would have loved to have taken part in that if it wasn't for the fact that I knew it was on our land and they were doing all this at expense of all these people having a home. That actually must have been really weird for you because you're the same age as them and you're not allowed to be on your land and you're watching them go out and enjoy it. Yep. What was that like? When you grow up seeing the racist racism all around you, it's, you almost just kind of think that that's normal. Different. I mean, how did, how did slaves feel growing up? forced labor and conditions they were forced to live in. I mean, you don't really talk about it. You don't, you try not to think about it. (laughs) It is just what it is. Because when you do start thinking about it, you're talking about it, you come to the conclusion that you got to do something to it, about it, to change it. You can't, can't let it be. Like I was saying, um, I knew enough in my 
my day and age of growing up that the stuff with um i guess modern technology the news uh cameras and stuff that there was a a lot more protection in getting our story out to the general public I mean, when it comes down to it most people aren't evil generally people are good good-natured and fair hear about you not having a home having your home taken away and they think about how they would feel looking at their home most people think that's not right and would support us mind you there's others that it's not everybody some some actually think we deserve that but they're usually the ones that are benefiting In March 1992, 50 years after the military seized the land, Parliament's Standing Committee on Aboriginal Peoples revisited the issue of Stony Point. They tabled a report recommending the return of the land. The Department of National Defence replied, they still needed the base. 50 years, three generations, six elders in their 70s decided to take the land back. They served the army in 90-day eviction notice. On May 6, 1993, they drove up to the front gate of the base and asked if they could have a picnic. And they didn't say how long that picnic would last. The military let them in. A group of 30 others followed, among them Kevin Simon and Dudley George. Once inside, Kevin says they posted notices on the fence post. They served on papers to the the military over at the main gate going into the barracks, letting them know what it is we plan to do. We weren't armed, we weren't gonna doing any kind of illegal activities. We were just coming home and our elders wanted to, to go home before they died. So that was what we were doing and we let them know. The notice read in part. We are not claiming that Stony Point Reserve number 43 in the name of only those uprooted but also in the right of the first and second and third generation children whose parents and grandparents have been victimized by the taking of their lands, farms in 1942. They had reclaimed their land. In our long struggle for home, when the people of Stony Point describe this day, it is pure joy. Elders showed their grandchildren where their homes had once stood. And someone found a line of daffodils that marked where the old school had been. A tripod was set over the fire, and they began cooking. Elders and their families had a picnic. Then they lit a sacred fire and, literally, buried a hatchet under a peace tree, a ceremony cementing a promise that this reoccupation would be peaceful. But you know that's not how this ends. It never is. That's in part two of Canada Land Back. Canada Land Back is hosted by Karen Pugliese. That's me. This episode was produced by Karen Pugliese and Kim Wheeler, with support from Casti Villebrun Barracas. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Majoshin.
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.